welcome to episode 30 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is October 4th. And before we begin, I just wanted to say congrats to you, Lee, for making it through 30 episodes with me, uh, mostly because of my sarcasm and snark that I think I give you every episode. Well, you keep saying this, Merle, but here in Israel, it's actually not really as exceptional as it is in the United States. So so let's say I've been inoculated to sarcasm by, by growing up here. But yeah, 30 episodes in half a year, a bit over an episode a week on average is really quite something and an accomplishment. So congratulations to you too, Merle. And plus, we keep adding new listeners every week. So we just wanted to thank all of you guys for listening and glad you've been enjoying the show. And I actually checked before this episode, a bit earlier, and we've had so far listeners from almost 60 countries. So that's actually pretty impressive. And as always, please do continue to rate us through your podcasting service and let us know if you have any ideas for people to have on. And some of our most successful episodes were with people that were suggested to us. Today's episode is the second half of our two-episode mini-arc on vaccinations. Our thanks again to our assistant producer, Tori Zerl, who helped put this together after a lot of research on guests, topics, and ideas. And as in the previous episode, we'll have Tori on during the wrap-up segment. Our guest for today is Elise Mitchell, who is a PhD candidate at NYU. Her dissertation is entitled Smallpox and Slavery, Morbidity, Medical Intervention, and Enslaved People's Lives in the Greater Caribbean. It considers how smallpox quarantines, treatments, and inoculations affected enslaved Africans during the 17th and 18th centuries. Elise works more broadly on questions of the black body, Atlantic slavery, the history of medicine, the history of public health, and gender and women's history. She has a forthcoming article in an edited volume entitled Unbelievable Suffering, Rethinking Feigned Endless in Slavery and the Slave Trade, and has written and spoken public-facing work such as an article in The Atlantic, the shortages may be worse than the disease. So hi, Elise. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And as usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 where we're at. So Merle, let's start with you as usual, I guess. Well, how, how are things in Annapolis and maybe in the U.S. more broadly? Well, I have to mention just for posterity, because probably whatever I say at this moment will be inaccurate in 20 minutes, let alone when this episode comes out uh, in a few days. But the uh, mind-boggling insanity from this administration is ongoing. Um, We had some friends for a socially distanced lunch uh, outside in our backyard. And from the beginning of the lunch to the end of the lunch, there were literally four changes in the president's health, uh, which was fascinating. So that's one thing. On a more local level, we actually did drive through flu shots for my kids today. So they stay in the car and they just like get jabbed in the leg uh, as you drive through. And I have to say, actually, it was much better than bringing them in somewhere to get a flu shot. So, you know, if there's something I hope changes, you know, on a small, very small local level, it's that they continue these drive through flu shots because they're actually just much better and it doesn't lead to my son in particular, melting down for the entire like 30 minute experience in the doctor's <laughs> office. He only gets about two minutes to melt down. So where did they actually do that? Are, are these uh, parking lots? Yeah, yeah, the parking lot directly behind the doctor's office. And there's like three stations set up. And the first one, you give them your paperwork. The second one, they take temperatures. And then the third one, they give you the flu shot. 
Lee seemed to be in shock over this. No, it's just very amusing. It's it's very American, I guess, just doing it all in your car. Yeah, but as I said, it, my son could only cry for three minutes, so that was kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wish there was something like this for dogs. That would definitely make my dog less <laughs> anxious. <laughs> but my daughter doesn't understand the connection between like a doctor's visit and pain yet. So, so she, yeah, it's not, it's not a big deal for her yet. Yeah, just wait. But uh, what about you, Lee? Are you still protesting these days or has uh, your government effectively ended that? Right. So, so protests are currently limited to a radius of one kilometer. So it's a bit over half a mile from home. And the main center near my apartment in the last protest, which was yesterday, actually, had only hundreds of people instead of tens of thousands. So it's definitely quieter here. But over the past four months of protests, these protests really reached some kind of critical mass. So, so yesterday in the same protest, we actually had over a thousand mini protests all over the country with way, way more people involved and regretfully also more violence towards protesters. So as I kind of mentioned in the previous episode, the COVID crisis, which by itself isn't really under control yet, is exacerbating an existing major political crisis in this country, in Israel. And I guess that's more or less the same for you guys in the United States. Annalise, where are you and how are things like there? And how is it like to begin another semester of grad school during COVID? Yeah, I mean, I'm in Philadelphia um, currently. And I mean, it, it's not quite a semester because I'm dissertating. So it, it feels like I'm kind of doing some more of the same writing in solitude. But um, Philadelphia has been an interesting place to ride this out. Um, for the most part in my neighborhood, folks wear masks and take the social distancing really seriously. And people were willing to do that pretty early on, um, in March before the city directed everyone to, and before the governor directed folks to, but of course, like we did have, uh, have had widespread protests, have also had widespread actions around labor and housing because the city was hit really hard by, unemployment and also still hit very hard and disproportionately so across different populations in terms of um, COVID-19. So, um, you know, a lot of folks are unemployed and, and having a bit of a hard time. I've done some like virtual volunteering with mutual aid, kind of checking in on neighbors and, and making sure that they can get access to groceries and other things. But um, folks folks are, are really struggling personally and then as well as dealing with uh, the health impacts of COVID-19 if they had it um, or if someone that they knew had it. Although there are some silver linings, like there was um, an encampment of folks who were unhoused in Philadelphia is still, but they were just recently able to get one of the largest land trusts of vacant houses. So folks will have a place to stay and be able to more effectively quarantine and like stay warm for the winter and it's permanent housing. So for the foreseeable future, which I think is a really good start in this city, but it's definitely like um, hard times for folks, but people are rallying and in my sense, taking the pandemic pretty seriously, at least in, in the parts of the city that I've been to and where I am. But I can't really speak for the rest of Pennsylvania though, unfortunately. And how are things at the university? I mean, you're probably receiving the NYU emails but how, what's your sense of how things are there? Yeah, so NYU reopened um, with pretty rigorous testing requirements and rigorous like quarantine restrictions that align with what New York has. And they have a number of precautions inside. I have not been 
um, back to NYU since March um, or been back to the city of New York since March. So I, I don't really know what that experience looks like on the ground. Um, things that I've heard from people, of course, were like pretty bad early on for folks in the city. But in terms of NYU students, the students that I know that are in New York City have not been back to campus there. I mean, like the librarians are like really our heroes. They've been great about shipping books and getting us access to things and everything and been trying to reduce um, the number of people that come to campus as, as much as possible. And I know that there are social distancing restrictions within the buildings, but I felt like it was a, it was a thoughtful response. I think that closure might have been more appropriate in some cases, just given what I saw here in Philly locally in terms of Temple University spurring an outbreak and then them having to go fully remote and impose some more stringent social distancing requirements to help bring the numbers back down. But my sense is that folks there are being thoughtful and that the campus is definitely at a really reduced capacity um, right now. Yeah, it seems like pretty standard reduced capacity on campus, moving at least some things online. Yeah. My understanding is that most of the courses are currently um, happening online there. Yeah. In my university, it's it's going to be all, almost the same. Okay. So I guess we can start off the discussion. Um, we just had an episode on vaccines from the late 18th to the early 20th century, but could you set the groundwork for us before that time period? So How was smallpox treated before vaccinations became widespread? In the work that I do, I focus on the period between the 16th century and um, the turn of the 19th century. So during the 16th century, quarantine was really the, the primary means by which smallpox was contained and controlled in European settings um, and in Euro-American settings. And the same was true through the 17th century. Um, and so it's not really until the early 18th century that you start to see Europeans becoming more interested in using smallpox inoculation, but it's not very widespread until maybe the 1760s or so um, in the Americas at least. But you know, you also have native people who had a variety of traditions in terms of dealing with smallpox, which was an old world disease. So it, it was unfamiliar to them before European contact. But in terms of disease treatments and public health things throughout both Latin America, the Caribbean um, and North America, Native people had a variety of ways of like kind of adjusting in terms of things that somewhat resemble social distancing, as well as different herbal and topical treatments for the disease. And then for Africans who arrived in the Americas as enslaved people for the most part, If they were coming from West Africa, in some cases, they were practicing quarantine. They were familiar with using quarantines at home. They were also, in some cases, familiar with smallpox inoculation. In terms of when they started practicing smallpox inoculation, that's unclear from the sources. And then in terms of West Central Africa, you had more um, West Central Africans who were familiar with different forms of topical remedies, such as palm oil and other things, and likely had their own forms of, of quarantining practices and a variety of spiritual practices associated with the, with smallpox and other diseases. But in terms of like spiritual and healing practices that were specifically associated with smallpox, that's more of a West African phenomenon. 
So because you mentioned quarantine in particular, what was quarantine like for smallpox in particular? Maybe pick a place if you want to narrow down what I know is a very broad question. Yeah. Um, Well, so it's something that it's something that changes pretty significantly over time. So we see some of the first sort of efforts to address public health and the slave trade in the 16th century coming out of Iberia. Um, that are sort of drawing on the earlier tradition or earlier medieval traditions around quarantine in Europe. And as slave ships are sort of routed through the Iberian Peninsula before coming to the Americas, there's a greater concern around public health. And there are a number of scholars who've written about sort of the widespread public health reforms in the 16th century. But you don't really start to see maritime quarantine legislation and quarantine practices in the Americas, specifically targeting enslaved people. Um, and specifically targeting recently arrived enslaved Africans until the sort of turn of the 17th century. There were, of course, a number of of Catholic hospitals that were established during the 16th century um, in the Spanish Caribbean and and other parts of the Spanish and Portuguese Americas. But the policies specifically targeting enslaved people really emerge in around like the second decade of the 17th century. But there's, there's some evidence to suggest that these were enforced a little bit earlier. And for this sort of first iteration of of these policies, and I'm talking about ones that specifically reference the slave trade, the Spanish would go aboard the ships, see if there were any enslaved Africans who were presenting smallpox symptoms, and then quarantine those of them who had symptoms. Just a quick question. When you say maritime quarantine, does that mean that ships are being quarantined at sea, or do the people actually come offshore to some kind of quarantine facility? So it depended on the location and it depended on how zealous the local government wanted to be. So in a place like Puerto Rico, their laws stipulated that their local ordinances passed by their um, cabildo or municipal government said that enslaved people who arrived carrying smallpox would have to be sent to um, the Isla de Cabras, which is now not an island anymore, but was a small island near the San Juan port. In other places, people had to remain aboard the ships. It's unclear to what extent, like what the infrastructure was for land quarantines. Later in the late 17th and 18th century, you see more pest houses and kind of smallpox hospitals at these locations um, where folks were disembarked. But before that, a lot of times people were kept aboard the slave ship or held in um, sort of temporary makeshift structures, a lot of times described as tents. Um, and that also continues through the 18th century. And how long were these quarantines? And were the only, and did they only quarantine people with symptoms? So in the 17th century, it was typically only enslaved Africans with symptoms. However, it depended very, it varied very much port by port because this was something that was controlled by the municipal government. And in some cases, in places like Puerto Rico, they passed legislation in Lima and and Buenos Aires, they also passed legislation. But in other places um, like La Guaira and Cumana along the Venezuelan coast, they kind of handled these, it seems, on a case-by-case basis. In which case, sometimes the local government would not permit the ship to to, um, land the enslaved Africans to disembark them and would just send it further out to sea or even send it on to another destination. Um, protracting their journeys because 
they did not want to deal with a, a potential outbreak or there was pressure from the public around the outbreak. And who counted as public was very varied. Sometimes it was just other Spanish colonists, but I've seen a few cases where um, they actually do mention that they consulted other enslaved and free African people, other native people in the area and felt that quarantining the ship like dis or disembarking enslaved Africans and quarantining them on land would have been too risky to those populations because the location of the quarantine might have been close to where they lived. So you mentioned risk and where they were putting people and thinking about these things. You know, probably some of our listeners are curious, did quarantine actually work, you know, medically? And we can get to problems and the downsides of many of these uh, practices, but maybe just from a medical perspective, were they effective? So it's a difficult question to answer um, because as other historians have mentioned, our concepts of disease change pretty dramatically over time. And so like, for instance, a historian of the Luso Atlantic um, or Portuguese Atlantic, um, Hugh Cagle talks about how it's better to just refer to all of the different pox producing diseases as the poxes until the 18th century because Europeans had not settled on a, a strict definition um, distinguishing the diseases from one another it, and did not ascribe to the definitions that we may have today. And while I agree with that to some extent, you do see, especially in Portuguese, you see the term bexiga show up for diseases that are not necessarily smallpox. Sometimes you see that term for diseases like measles or, or for other pox producing diseases. In other empires, there was also just a lot of confusion around making an accurate or a quote unquote accurate diagnosis. So in some cases, enslaved people arrived with other skin lesions that led some physicians to believe that they were that they had smallpox symptoms or or some port surgeons and doctors to believe that they had smallpox symptoms and the person who was selling them did not believe that that was representative of smallpox you have some cases where people deliberately tried to conceal um, smallpox outbreaks either on the sort of side of the municipal governments across different empires or on the side of the the slave traders themselves hoping to to be able to sell the people um, you also have, there are also instances of people fabricating outbreaks. So while um, historians have, have spoken a lot about how there's, it's unclear whether or not um, these policies were effective, that lack of clarity is not due to a lack of documentary records, but more so because the records themselves are often dubious. I would say that quarantine, it seems like it worked better for more centralized empires and empires that had, had ports that were well fortified. In my research, I have seen a lot of records of like the quote unquote success where they say, well, we didn't, we were able to prevent a potential epidemic by quarantining and save people. But um, that was something that tended to be the most true for the, for the Spanish because of how fortified their ports were. But in terms of like other, there were other issues too, in terms of smuggling and save people in and, and other things like that, that kind of disrupted the efficacy of it. So maybe you could walk us through what was the experience of these enslaved people themselves, right? So we've been talking about the, the, the infrastructure and the slave trade and bringing these people in, but what did they go through? And we can, we can start with that, I guess. And then we can also talk about how do we know that? Yeah. So it's something that, so again, their experiences varied pretty dramatically over time and depending on where they were brought if we look at, like, for instance, the 
17th century, the early 17th century Spanish slave trade, which I was describing earlier, provides examples of, of enslaved Africans' experiences, both in terms of them first being evaluated and often like held for a pretty long time aboard different slave ships or in factories before boarding the ships to, to cross the Atlantic. During their transatlantic crossings, if an outbreak occurred in the 17th century, it, it was very rare that the enslaved Africans received any form of medical attention because of um, the slave traders themselves' fears about epidemics. There are a few cases, one, the Santa Cruz in 1616, where the enslaved Africans were thrown overboard for fear that they would infect other people and then delay the sale once they arrived in the port um, of Cartagena. And so once they arrived in the Spanish Caribbean, they had to undergo a series of um, entrance inspections, one called the Visita de Sanidad, which was um, a health inspection of the enslaved, specifically designed to check if they had any contagious diseases. And then the other ones were financial, um, the, the Palmeo and later the, the Visita de Adiciones. And these are things that um, become a part of the Spanish, a fixture of the Spanish slave trade pretty early on in the 17th century and continues through the 18th century with various modifications. If during the Visita de Sanidad, which was performed in daylight, um, if during that the enslaved Africans who were being examined by a, by a doctor and a surgeon appointed by the municipal government, they may or may not have been people with licenses from Spain, it depended on the port, um, and they may or may not have been other people who were also of African descent in some cases um, because of the demographic makeup of the medical professions at smaller Caribbean ports. During these exams, they're pretty physically invasive. They'd be touched, their pulses would be checked, they would be smelled and, and basically physically scrutinized according to the kind of medical ideologies of the day. So ideas about miasma theory, ideas about how the disease might manifest on a person's body, specifically contagious diseases. If they were found to have contagious diseases, then they were sent to quarantine either on board a ship a certain distance from the port or at a landed location. In the 17th century, this was typically only the um, Africans who had manifested symptoms or who the physicians believed had symptoms. By the 18th century, they were just sending everyone. The French became similarly scrupulous over time. They passed as a royal order the first um, sort of blanket quarantine regulations for the slave trade. But then, it, like the Spanish, it was up to the local municipalities to determine, the local colonial governments to determine how that would unfold. And that varied pretty significantly from port to port. In some cases, um, the enslaved Africans were sent to um, small islands or like sort of like bays and coves and things like that, similar to the, the, the Spanish case. And by the 18th century, they started to have to undergo a similar um, sanitary inspection to what the Spanish use. And in the British case, there were rarely sanitary inspections in place and they took place at to varying degrees depending on the time and the level of concern that the colonial government had. And the quarantines for them were similarly enforced to varying degrees. For the British, unlike the other locations, they did not, the English and the British never 
pass a a blanket quarantine law that applied to all of their colonies. It was very much up to the local assemblies to do that. And having ports that were not particularly well fortified, they had a limited ability to enforce that. I've seen across all of the different empires, I've seen the most examples of people sort of dodging the quarantine regulations and coming from the British. Um, and that had to do somewhat with their extensive smuggling networks, but also with the early stage of the plantation machine. And so for the enslaved in, in that context, before the before the 1720s, they underwent a very similar experience in Africa to what I described earlier. And then um, crossed the Atlantic and may or may not have undergone a, a sanitary inspection or a quarantine. And by the 1720s, the Royal Africa Company started doing some experiments with smallpox inoculation and the slave trade on the West African coast. But I think we may talk, we may have an opportunity to talk more about that later. The efficacy of those was, it was very varied. Um, and by the late 18th century, they sort of continued to do that, but inoculation tended to be something that they did more so across the Atlantic at their Caribbean ports before transshipping enslaved people across imperial or colonial borders. I mean, you mentioned earlier that in one case, I guess the slave owners or, or the captain of the ship or whoever decided to just throw some of the enslaved people who were sick overboard. How common were that and in other ways of simply trying to avoid the problem and not dealing with it? So either killing enslaved people, abandoning them somewhere, or maybe even releasing them instead of just dealing with their diseases? Well, so, I mean, release release was rare. I haven't seen that. Um, so this had to do, the fact that he threw them overboard had to do with the, the specifics of the time period. Um, in terms of the fact that he was someone who was working on a Portuguese ship that was already overcrowded. So basically like they had taken aboard more enslaved people than they planned to, more enslaved people than their quota um, allowed because he was trying to prevent them from losing profits if they sold folks when they sold them in the Americas. There, I've seen a couple of other examples from the late 18th century of that, but these the sources that are available tend to have to do with cases where there was some type of legal retribution for something that occurred involving the involving the ship, whether it was a question of them overloading it, whether there was a dispute about the smallpox outbreak or something else. So it's difficult to say how frequently that occurred. Um, although we do have a lot of data about the voyages, it's difficult to say how often that was something that occurred. But in this case, um, this particular slave ship captain felt very comfortable admitting that, which might speak to the frequency with which it happened. So there was no, there didn't seem to be any moral, all right, strong moral argument against it in the records that you've seen. No. And I mean, this has to do with the broader history of slavery as well. So you start to see moral arguments concerning enslaved Africans' health and concerning managing um, or ending the slave trade really in the mid and late 18th centuries. And so one of the things that's very interesting about the history of smallpox for this earlier period is that this is before all of those different sort of French and British abolitionist sentiments, Spanish abolitionist sentiments, and various pro-slavery reforms that were focused on sort of ensuring that enslaved Africans could reproduce and produce the labor necessary for the colonies after the slave trade ended. 
you don't see that in this earlier period. The trade was particularly brutal during the from the 16th century through most of the 18th century, um, where the primary concern of the enslavers was to manage contagions so that they would not spread to the colonies or, or to their colonial residents and upset their economics or, or social life in any way. And so the disregard any time that, that the disregard for enslaved Africans' health or humanity arose, it was always linked to finance, whether or not this would continue to like serve their profits and things like that. So you've mentioned a number of legal sources and other types. What other types of ways do you understand the experience of enslaved people? Um, and maybe if you could focus here perhaps on forced inoculation, since that's something we haven't touched upon, but I know you do a bunch of work on as well. Yeah, so inoculation is a really interesting case because the 1720s, you start to see some sources. Um, I feel like Cotton Mather is probably one of the most well-known coming out of Boston um, with Anesmus who told him about smallpox inoculation in West Africa. And there were also a number of other um, enslaved Africans who he interviewed, who we don't have um, discrete individual records for, but do have him sort of saying that he spoke to other people from West Africa, an area that's now Ghana, that um, were familiar with this practice. And there is one more extended interview um, by Benjamin Coleman, who was another Puritan minister, who spoke to an enslaved African man who told him about how getting smallpox inoculations in West Africa enabled him to go or would enable young men to be able to go and trade wherever they please. It would sort of preserve families and that they had some autonomy over the practice. Um, now, I don't want to idealize West Africa at this time period. I mean, the folks who who told these stories in Boston were enslaved by, were taken captive by other Africans and enslaved. but the fact that this was a standard, they, they kind of paint a little bit of a picture of what the standard of public health was at the time. And if we sort of shift focus to the Caribbean and Saint-Domingue, there are several sources describing West Africans continuing to practice smallpox inoculation among themselves in the Caribbean during this time, and specifically focusing on, on children at times when an epidemic threatened to, to strike, they would, they would take groups, small groups of children and inoculate them according to the method of their country is sort of the quote that you often see. So was smallpox inoculation a communal practice among communities of enslaved people in the Caribbean? It appears that to some extent it was. Um, it seems like many... Um, enslaved West Africans continued the practice once they were enslaved in the Caribbean. And you even see some evidence of this through vaccination in terms of enslaved mothers negotiating for payment um, if the vaccine is taken directly from their child um, rather than like, like an arm-to-arm vaccine rather than the sort of packets that circulated as well. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, so James Thompson in Jamaica talks about in, I guess his book comes out in 1820. So this would have been the, probably the 18 teens. Um, He talks about instances where he spoke to enslaved Africans and mentions that like every physician in Jamaica is aware that if you take any lymph or crust from their child to vaccinate someone else, you'll need to provide a payment in exchange or some small gratuity. And then he talks about how that was a practice that was a holdover from smallpox inoculation earlier as well. And in in the French Caribbean, 
West Africans referred to it as, as buying the smallpox in French, um, which has connotations that sort of allude to the Eastern European practice, but there's also quite a bit of evidence from West African travel narratives and North African travel narratives of these payments being part of financial exchanges that were related to spiritual practices and, and healing practices designed to sort of appease different deities or um, appease the, the priest or the family members from whom the, the different, um, I guess like the, the pus or, or viral material was taken. And in terms of the length of time that this practice was in place, I mean, in some French sources, um, Charles-Marie de la Condamine talks about how this was a practice that dates to time immemorial, like antiquity. And there are a few British folks who also say the same thing. And the West African sources that I've seen or sources from Europeans who interviewed West Africans, they also that they've been practicing it since before anyone could remember. So you mentioned briefly uh, inoculation of children. So maybe you could touch upon the differences in medical intervention between men and women and other groups as well. I can focus on inoculation because for quarantine, it's, it's quite complicated, but I could talk about that after too, if you'd like. For inoculation, so smallpox was generally usually a childhood disease. We know now that, and by our definitions of what smallpox is now, it's a disease that you can only have once. If you have it, you will have lifelong immunity. By the 18th century, when once inoculation was more widespread, that was a bit more clear to Europeans. They did not think that it was something that people would get again, for the most part. So a lot of the focus around managing smallpox, both in inoculation and quarantine as well, had to do with concerns about children's health. I mean, part of the reason why the Spanish may have introduced the quarantine practices that they did in the early 17th century has to do with the fact that the demographics of the slave trade shifted dramatically from being primarily adults to having large numbers of small children, young girls and boys um, arriving in the Americas who just by their age and also by the conditions of their captivity would have been more, much more vulnerable to smallpox. And you see similar things arise in the early 18th century where um, Jamaica's one telling example. In the 1730s, they're going through the Maroon War in part because of concerns around settling the interior of Jamaica and concerns about the large Maroon presence there and a desire to sort of outnumber to achieve some level of demographic superiority or at least increase the number of white potentially slaveholding families in the area. And there's a very um, significant discourse in the government around families and establishing these good Christian colonial families. At the same time, a smallpox outbreak rips through the area around Kingston that is reputedly, that was a smallpox outbreak that was reputedly brought by enslaved Africans. And the assemblies and local vestries are lamenting the fact that so many white children have died. So they pass a quarantine law to, reg to more closely regulate the slave trade. With that specific concern around children, around free white children's health um, as a concern because of these ideas around settlement and wanting to increase their, their presence in the colony. But then in terms of inoculation as well later, children are the primary recipients of arm-to-arm -arm inoculations during epidemics because of the fact that they, it's less likely that they would have received, that they would have um, developed a smallpox immunity. And you see quite a bit of concern 
in areas that were not yet practicing smallpox inoculation, the Spanish started practicing a little bit later. Um, Venezuela, I believe, is the first. Caracas around like se- the 1760s. And the French pretty much adopted in the 1760s. And through different French Caribbean newspapers, you start to see a lot of um, advertisements for physicians that will perform inoculations on enslaved people. And they cite their experience performing inoculations on enslaved children or performing inoculations on, on military men and things like that. Another community that physicians were particularly concerned about were pregnant women. You have some folks who are notorious, like John Quire, who performed a number of smallpox inoculation experiments in Jamaica on pregnant enslaved women to see whether or not it was something that could be performed on Europeans and whether or not it would be safe. And it, it, he at first thought that it might be, and then it proved that it wasn't. And there's a number of other experiments using tar water and other things that go on in the, in the British Caribbean and are sort of tested in some cases on enslaved people as well as on poor white people in, in Europe and, and in the Americas too. But just to, to follow up one of the things you mentioned, so, so you mentioned that in both in this answer and earlier on, that there were certain groups that for whatever reason ended up trying to improve the treatment of enslaved people. So could you maybe expand a bit on that? I mean, who were these groups? When do do they start appearing? And when is the argument about the actual welfare of the enslaved people show up? Because as as I understand it, that happens only later on. Yeah, so concerns about the actual welfare of enslaved people arise around the mid to primarily late 18th century. Um, The most well-documented ones come from British and French abolitionist societies who sort of pressure to end the slave trade, which then garners a response from people who are slaveholders themselves and folks who are pro-slavery to say that they need to sort of the word that folks often use is ameliorate the conditions of enslaved people. This is most important after 1807, after the British abolition of the slave trade, when everyone's concerned, when everyone throughout the Americas that is a slaveholding society becomes very concerned that their slave trades may end as well, that they won't be able to sort of replenish the population of enslaved people and will then have labor shortages and other things like that. Before that period, the primary concern among Europeans and enslaved Africans' health has to do with whether or not they can spread contagious diseases to them or spread contagious diseases that will cause the enslaved Africans to die or cause Native people to die and then produce a labor shortage in certain contexts. But their concerns are rarely for the, the welfare of the enslaved at any point, um, but especially not before rising abolitionist sentiments. However, you do have enslaved people who were concerned about each other. Um, And I mean, I think that that's one of the things that's most fascinating about the history of inoculation, at least that while the colonial government was only concerned with enslaved Africans' welfare in terms of their laboring capacity and in terms of potential financial losses, enslaved Africans who continue to practice smallpox inoculation and and perform other kinds of, of healing labors on one another demonstrate a concern for not just themselves, but for their broader communities and also for their families too, especially since this was a disease that targeted children and enslaved African children were very unlikely to survive in the Caribbean, especially in the plantation societies, which is where I've found the most evidence of West Africans practicing smallpox inoculation, places like Jamaica and Saint-Domingue with today Haiti. That demonstrates that they were very concerned about sort of maintaining these intergenerational kinship ties and, and 
trying to figure out ways to ensure that their children survive despite the brutal system that they were ensnared in. So what happens with the U.S.? I mean, when does, when, whether uh, the United States begins to, to pay more attention to this? Well, so like, the, do you mean the U.S. in terms of like it as a nation or do you mean the U.S. in terms of like its colonies or like the colonial history or more? I guess I mean the U.S. as a nation somewhere in the 19th century, right? Because that's, yeah. Well, so the U.S., So the U.S. starts to pay more attention to smallpox inoculation in the the American Revolutionary War. Elizabeth Fenn's Pox Americana is kind of like the 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 best text covering that. Um, but you did see some examples earlier in the colonial period too. Um, and they, I mean, George Washington included all troops in his inoculation campaign that included enslaved and free Africans who who were fighting in the Revolutionary War. However, as Elizabeth Fenn points out in her book. Um, and I'll defer to, to her accounts because I haven't seen other sources besides the ones that she cites. Enslaved Africans suffered pretty severely from smallpox and also from smallpox inoculation because, and I probably should have said this earlier, smallpox inoculation is not d- did not necessarily produce a milder form of the disease. People still had to be quarantined. They were still contagious if they contracted the disease through inoculation. So the... Continental Army was kind of inoculating enslaved and free African troops and then just leaving them to sort of fend for themselves. And I mean, by the 19th century, in terms of vaccination, a few historians have written around how vaccination campaigns included included enslaved African Americans. But there are a few historians who've done research on the free African-American press in the 19th century and have spoken about and have written and spoken about how free African-Americans were pretty staunch advocates for changing the ways that vaccinations were performed because although it prevented the disease, the conditions under which um, enslaved African-Americans were inoculated and or vaccinated, I'm sorry, were not ideal or really necessarily conducive to having good positive health outcomes. Because besides dying of the disease, you know, there's also concerns about scarring, the high fevers, if they're being administered other medications that are are making them delirious or that may have other adverse side effects and things like that, as well as just the condition of being enslaved is already in and of itself a, a huge health hazard. So I want to move from the past here a bit more to the present and ask Maybe an unfair question, but I ask it of all the guests, so I'm equally unfair in that regard. And that's, are there any lessons that we did learn or could have learned uh, that we should think about when it comes to this pandemic, perhaps, that we're all living through? In terms of what we could learn from this history, I would say the first is that, you know, social conditions can produce a disease, geographic conditions, laboring conditions can produce a morbid context in which people are going to suffer from a disease and it will spread. The slave trade, the fact that enslaved Africans were kept in such close quarters and taken from their homelands facilitated the spread of smallpox in a lot of ways. And that even when a disease is not necessarily racialized, which was the case with smallpox, when it's when a certain subset of a population is forced to live in conditions where the disease spreads, that population ends up being stigmatized. Um, And I didn't really talk about that earlier, but recently arrived enslaved Africans were considered to be conduits of smallpox, not because of any essential characteristic about them, but because of the fact that 
most Europeans, potential enslavers, slave, everyone involved in the slave trade, were brutally aware of the fact that the, those conditions would enable smallpox to spread. So I think thinking about the broader context in which um, pandemics and epidemics occur is one thing, as well as the question of, of precedent. I mean, I am delighted that right now um, we're seeing across the world governments and, and different communities taking this disease much more seriously. But one thing that I, I did notice sort of looking at this broader, like 300 year history, is that one of the most frequent things besides like a lot of secrecy or kind of like deception around whether or not um, different people have smallpox in order to circumvent certain public health regulations. But the other thing is also that governments will often would often rely on previous legal precedents for different forms of surveillance or sanitary inspections. And so policies that may have been developed for sort of a what seemed like a one-time epidemic or one-time pandemic in a region would then sort of get adopted and then eventually even like built into the colonial law or the or regulations in the slave trade. In the case of Spanish and, and some Portuguese slave trading contracts, the municipal quarantine guidelines sort of get embraced in those contracts permanently. So thinking in, in terms of longevity, although COVID-19 may be a pandemic that we're able to overcome, the precedents that we're setting around medical testing and surveillance and the availability of our different kinds of, of medical records may be something that stays with us. Some of these social distancing requirements, mask wearing, other things, maybe things that stay with us. And so um, moving forward, thinking about that, as well as the fact that like everything else, diseases do not know borders. Um, so thinking about how people move and how pathogens move is, is always important for how to prevent a pandemic from, or an epidemic from spiraling out into a pandemic. So do you think that we as historians have a specific role to play in, I guess, the public discourse surrounding this? I'm assuming yes, but. Yeah. I think we do in terms of, of providing a perspective for the possible ways that things can go. I, there, there were a few historians who came out pretty early on in this pandemic. I feel like their pieces ran in like maybe March or April talking about how, you know, you can't know two pandemics are alike. And I think that that, I think that that definitely holds true. And I would caution anyone to make from making like a a one-to-one comparison. Um, as someone who who studies, gosh, what might be like maybe 400 different outbreaks and epidemics, 500 different outbreaks and epidemics, there's a lot of ways that that things can unfold and just being aware of as many of them as possible is important. And especially learning from both our past histories where it's a where people are dealing with a disease that, you know, maybe has similarities to COVID-19 and the fact that it's novel, but also dealing, addressing like the very recent histories of our ongoing HIV pandemic and and other other pandemics that have happened more recently. So I think on that more present note, and I think this is actually an interesting line we should keep going with Lee about different people and how they're thinking about this in terms of public discourse. I mean, this has been the last few episodes where I think both Elise and other people have done a lot of great work interacting with you know non-academic historians. And I think that's something that, that we should continue moving forward. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much, Elise, for taking the time to come on our podcast. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again. 
Okay, so as we begin our reflection segment, uh, we have with us here Tori, our assistant producer. So hi, Tori. Hello. So I think that this episode with Elise actually tied very well to the previous episode, the, the earlier episode in the vaccination arc, the Harris episode, obviously being chronologically earlier, but also maybe somewhat more specific, which was also very helpful. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And the two actually worked, I think, quite neatly together because there were a number of points that Jim Harris raised about vaccinations and inoculations and some of the repercussions of it. And I think Elise nicely filled in much more of the human experience of this process. Yeah, I think it was a... In a sense, it was the difference or a difference between history of science for the previous episode and maybe more history for this episode. I think it was interesting, uh, the connection to Harris as well, when Elise mentioned inoculations as being risky. And in a lot of instances, they were just as risky, maybe even more than uh, getting the virus. And it's true, she did make a very human version of it, that these were people being affected. And even that we're seeing eradication of the virus now, it had a very kind of deep and dark history. Yeah, which came came out much more in this episode, I think. There were some, some stories that were very jarring. I guess we can get to those a bit later. Yeah, I also thought one of the really interesting points that Elise raised was about uh, the terminological problems and questions about once you go a little bit farther back in time, right? How we retro-diagnose these diseases, some of the arguments we're used to about the Justinianic plague or the Black Death or other things. Yeah, and it's actually a bit surprising to, to hear that these are issues that are still being debated or are still open issues as recently as the 17th century, maybe even the 18th century. It's interesting to have a spiritual and healing aspect to it and and even diagnosed as miasma right like in the 1500s cells weren't even defined yet let alone viruses so everything was based off of observation and if a certain group had the virus on, on top of their being the look of the virus would that include like more stigma i guess maybe that's that's what i'm saying yeah, it's actually interestingly thinking back on many of our episodes. We haven't done all that much, relatively speaking, on healing and responses that aren't what we would consider modern public health, right? It's something that, aside from Chris DeVette a long time ago talking about discourse and John of Ephesus and how he thinks about plague, we haven't done a lot of reflections and responses to many of these diseases. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things that Elise said, she kind of like passed over that, and this actually might warrant like an entire other episode, was that Native Americans kind of developed, really developed their own practices of dealing with smallpox, right, which is a new disease for them, but they're still learning and adapting and, and coming up with ideas that are probably some combination of, of traditional practices that they had, maybe they're learning or taking ideas, taking inoculations or, or any other practice to deal with smallpox from Europeans who are there. But but the process of how this is happening and, and how this is really spreading, I mean, the ideas is actually something that 
yes, Merle, we, we haven't really spoken about or, or really thought about in the past. And we were mentioning at some point that we should have a, a Native American episode at some point. And I think this should definitely be one of the questions that we ask there. Yeah, I mean, we've done the episode with Seth Archer about uh, Native Hawaiians. But certainly, I think one thing that's how we've approached some of these episodes to think very meta here for a secondly, is we've thought in terms of particular diseases and touching upon them and doing an episode on them rather than on perhaps responses as particular episodes. Right, because that's where we're coming from, right? This is how this is how you do diseases in our fields, right? And in, in pre-modern. So you think of I mean, we we tend to think about specific diseases, right? So or specific plagues, the Antonine plague, the Justinianic plague, the Black Death. And these are very discrete, whereas the public health perspective is much more holistic. And I think that as speaking to more modernist colleagues or guests. That that becomes very obvious. Yeah, I wonder if that has to do with how subfields themselves are set up, but that's for a longer discussion, right? I don't think as a pre-modernist, if you work on a disease, you ne- you are necessarily answering social, economic, disease, public health questions all at once, or you're pushed to to an extent. That perhaps doesn't necessarily play the case in every field, but that's for a longer discussion, as I say. Yeah. Adding to the idea of spirituality and healing and uh, different aspects like in the Native Americans, but I was thinking about how that was also true with community, which Elise mentioned as a part of um, an important part of inoculations and, and reacting to the virus. And now, like currently in 2020, there's tons and tons of research um, in medicine for the importance of social aspects and community for healing and well-being. And I think that's interesting that that was demonstrated throughout history, um, even if it was unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. And I think that, that, I mean, if you think about this, it's actually not obvious at all, right? So you take these people from where they were born in Africa, right? And you transfer them like half the world around you scatter them in like different places and still enough of these people come together, build communities based on the, their communities, the, the communities in which they grew in, or maybe like broader communities in Africa. And, and they come up with these kind of communal practices, right? So that means that somehow knowledge is being maintained, preserved, and transferred to subsequent generations, which again is not obvious when you think about like all the different barriers that they would have, right? Anything from linguistic barriers to really practical barriers of of being enslaved and and owned by other people. It was new for me to, to hear that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lee. And I also think that this is bringing us back. I always talk about circles for some reason on this podcast but bring us back to some of our first podcasts with Fuchsia Hoover and Michelle Smirnova about social inequality and COVID-19 in particular. And these are obviously topics that came up at the end of this podcast. And, you know, I think we can perhaps, if you want, leave, start returning to these questions in future episodes rather than just doing a disease or a pandemic or these types of things. Yeah, to me, some of the, the arguments that, at least spoke about that, I mean, that slave traders, slave owners had back then 
many of these arguments had to do with money and profits in, in a way that, I mean, in, in some sense, as you said, Merle, kind of has echoes with some of the discussions that we've had with both Fuchsia and Michelle or much earlier on in this podcast. But that definitely is a theme that we should continue to explore, I think, in, in different ways, right? So the, the connection between money, disease, taking care of people, trying to heal people, trying to cure people. On one hand, we maybe intuitively, maybe I intuitively see this as an altruistic practice. But on the other hand, there are some some very real, practical, financial, economic reasons to do that, both in the past and in the present. Yeah. So I think that's a number of good points to actually reflect upon in this wrap-up segment, both in terms of future episodes for us, Lee, and future things to think with um, moving forward. So I wanted to thank Tori again for putting this all together, both of these episodes. Yeah, thanks, Tori. It's, it's really something that we probably wouldn't have gotten to without you. So thanks. Thank you. So as we conclude this episode, Lee, I want to allow you to talk about something that you've been badgering me to talk about in this wrap-up segment, which is about working out. So what are you doing these days? I know you're a runner, Lee. Are you running, you know, 100 meter squares around your roof or something? I used to run less so now, basically because I've been pretty busy with taking care of my daughter, but I still am working out. So my wife and I bought a virtual reality headset. So it's Oculus Quest to, to those listeners who follow that world. So both of us work out with that. We can actually maybe speak a bit more about that in a future episode and what virtual reality actually means. Can you play play Gink on the Oculus headset? Yes, you can. Did you play it that way? So you could essentially see your desktop in virtual reality, right? So you can work on your desktop in virtual reality. You can watch movies in virtual reality. You can play Pandemic or... Plague Inc. Yeah, so you can do all of that. But what we do for working out is playing a, a game called Beat Saber. And the concept here is actually pretty simple. So you're holding two lightsabers in your hands and you're supposed to slash cubes while the music plays, right? So it's kind of like Guitar Hero for listeners who know what that is. And it sounds weird. And looking at someone playing from the outside, I can say that by looking at my wife. So you just like smash your or flail your arms all around you, kind of hitting the air. That does seem kind of ridiculous, but the game itself, and once you're actually playing with the headset on, it's actually a pretty good aerobic workout. So I recommend that actually. It's um, after half an hour of that, I, I usually am sweating quite a bit. And, and it's, it's also fun. So you, you get to listen to good music and kind of try to do some dance moves. I mean, not really, but kind of. And feel free to, to check YouTube videos of what this actually looks like. Do you have to pay for the games that you then play? So you pay for the headset and then you have to buy games. And that game, I think, sells for $30, which is relatively cheap, I would say. Fair enough. Yeah, we've been doing this for about a month now. So every day, both of us, for at least half an hour. So I, I, I'm pretty sure it, it definitely paid back. That was a, It was a good buy. 
And what about you? So I, I heard you were getting some fancy spinning bike with, with a special name. Yeah, my wife convinced me partially as a birthday present for her that we bought a Peloton, um, which seems to be the workout device of the U.S. pandemic. It's definitely expensive, that's for sure. But I'll just point out that it's actually less than two-thirds of the cost of one month of childcare, right? You know, that really seems like you're rationalizing this. Yes, but I also didn't pay for childcare for June, July, or August. So, you know, uh, we did manage to save some money. So that's partly what we use some of the money on. And then you pay for a subscription, which is actually pretty reasonable. It's like $40 a month. So what happens if you don't pay for a subscription? I mean, is the bike useless? I don't know, but I think you could just use the bike, presumably. But the subscription actually is not just the bike classes. So there's aerobic classes. There's bar classes, like, just for you. There's uh, weightlifting classes. There's meditation. There's yoga. There's really everything. Oh, so you you buy the bike, and then you get the bike with, like, the screen on it. But you can play other classes on the screen and not use the bike. Correct. And you can also play the classes on, we have a Roku that attaches to our TV, so we can play it on the Roku. You can play it on your phone. You can play it on an iPad. You can do it on any screen you want. Okay. So it's actually a combination of a bike and, and really a subscription to kind of like a personal trainer gym type of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I've only done three spin classes so far, which were a lot of fun actually. And I hate working out as you probably know, like I actually don't, Merle. I actually don't know. If I remember correctly, you did bar classes for like an entire year or two, right? Yeah, I hate working out by myself, I guess I should say. But this has made me do it. I'm very competitive because there's various competitive aspects you can do with it. And you can race friends and do all types of things like that. Yeah, so you probably get like a, a list of people you know, right? And like a list of people from your area and like world ranking or something. Yeah, so you can follow your friends. So I follow my wife and like my sister, my older sister has one. And so we follow each other and you could do classes together. So you burn more calories, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so. so maybe you should get another Peloton. No, you don't need more than one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, so that, that's good to hear then. So I guess that on this note, we can conclude our episode. Before we finish, we'd like to thank again Tori Zerl, our assistant producer, and Verdra Kanati, our webmaster. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and figure out a workout routine that you enjoy. Mm-hmm.